This is somewhat familiar to me. Some of you I still remember, hopefully you still remember us. Uh, some of you are new, which is a great, great thing to see. I was the, I was the sort of John Baptist of Calvary. I was the forerunner to your, uh, to your prophet here. <laughs> and it was, it was a great time for us to be here, uh, about six months or so, a few years back. And uh, I'm just thankful that we can be back, that we are still in the family of Christ, and that you are still uh, part of our lives in a significant way. And um, those of you who don't know me, my name is Anthony Vahala. Uh, to borrow a line from one of the guys at a church in North, at North Wake, where we attend, uh, I'm the guy who's got probably the coolest Eastern European accent that you'll ever hear preaching from this pulpit. And uh, I hope I can take this out, or there you go, so I can see you better. I have two jobs this morning. First, the most important job is to take you through God's Word. And second, uh, I hope we'll have enough time to do a little update on the work that we have in Czech Republic or we have been doing or the way God has been moving in the Czech Republic. And so we'll, we'll start. And uh, one of the things that I do in Czech, I teach theology. And so it only fits that we will look at a doctrine. Now, we will not look at doctrine in an exhaustive way. We will look at a doctrine uh, from a perspective of maybe one verse to kind of help us to see something that is significant. Now, this doctrine, theologians call it overlooked doctrine. J.I. Packer, maybe you have heard his name calls this doctrine the highest privilege which the gospel provides, even greater privilege than justification. Now, if it's a greater privilege than justification, that is interesting. That is something we need to pay attention to. It is the antidote to lawless life. A lot of times... We as Christians, those who believe that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, are accused of taking this as a license to sin. Now that I am saved, I can do whatever pleases me. But this doctrine works as an antidote, works as a cure to heal such mentality. Because if we understand it properly, it will lead us to obedience, it will lead us to love. It is a cure to this kind of mindset. This doctrine brings us also truth and gives us the deepest satisfaction and joy in God. Both apostles Peter and Paul wrote about it. And when we really focus on it and think through it, it will lead us to greater obedience to God, greater love for the Father, it will lead us to more intense fight with sin and deeper grasp of our unity as a church. Now, can you guess what doctrine that is? Don't be shy. Anyone? It's the doctrine of adoption. Have you heard that word? Adoption. Doctrine of adoption. Huge doctrine. 
that's often overlooked. It expresses simple but very profound truth, and that is that adoption is an act of God by means of which God made us members of His own family. The Baptist Catechism from 17th century explains it like this. Adoption is an act of God's free grace by means of which we were received among the many who have the right and the privilege of the sons of God. And J.I. Packer said, the best answer to who is Christian is this. We can answer it in many ways, but this is the best answer, the deepest and the richest answer that he knows. A Christian is a person who has God as their father. Now, I'm not going to, as I said, explain every detail of this doctrine. That's, that's impossible. We're dealing with an infinite God. But I want us to move towards knowing God better, knowing the Father better, delighting in Him as we get closer in our understanding of adoption. And so we will look at a short text. It is a very short text, but in this text, we are invited, we are challenged, we are exhorted to delight in God who adopted us into His family. So turn with me to John 3, 1 John chapter 3, and we'll be in verse 1. First John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Heavenly Father, I do ask you that this very verse would be seared into our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. That as we look at it, that we would be able to at least a little bit dive into the depths of the amazing love of God the Father towards us as His children. God, we are inadequate for these things. We are inadequate apart from your Holy Spirit. Me as a preacher and all of us as the hearers of your word. So we do... Ask for your grace to come and enable me to speak. Enable us to hear so that we may grow closer to you and love you more and delight in you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name, our great Savior and Lord. Amen. So this text tells us several things. It tells us to engage our affections and our understanding. To accept the truth of this text to accept the truth that God is our Father in terms of quality as well as quantity. And it challenges us to really meditate and marvel. That's what John is doing here. He wants us to connect our hearts and minds completely and focus on the privilege of adoption because it is indeed a privilege. John understood his privilege well. Already at the beginning of his letter he writes, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. John called God Father 11 times in the epistle. It's, it's a big, important subject to Him. And so, when we notice this text and the context in which it's found, it will indeed lead us to several things. It will lead us to greater love for God. 
it will lead us to greater fight against sin, and it will also lead us to greater love for the church. And this is visible just from the context. And right now we're just working through the context a little bit because this, obviously we cannot take the verse out of its context because as they say, verse out of context is a pretext for a proof text and we don't want to do that. First, greater love for God. In 1 John 4, 14, 16 we read, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Notice, we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us and leads us to abiding, leads us to this mutual abiding. Second, we see in the context also that it helps us and leads us to greater fight against sin. Just a few verses later, we read in 1 John 3, 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears... We shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who does hopes in Him, does what? Purifies himself as He is pure. And lastly, we see that it will lead to greater unity and love for the church. 1 John 3.10 But this is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not Love his brother. Now this is the context. When we begin to see the depth of adoption that has occurred to us. We begin to grow in our love for God. We begin to grow in our hate towards sin. And we begin to grow in our love for one another. And so let's go back to this verse. See. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Just the beginning word, see, it's not just simply to look at. The idea behind this word is to stare at, to have a good stare. If you ever go to Czech Republic, you will notice Czech people has interesting habit, and that is to stare at you. And they are unashamedly staring at you. They're looking at you, and they don't feel a bit embarrassed to stare you down as long as they please. We were in a square one time with my wife and the kids. And with ch- six children, you are a bit of a oddity, to put it nicely, uh, in the Czech Republic. Czechs are just amazed that somebody would dare to have six children. And uh, as we were sitting in a the square, there was a lady and, and her grand or her mother with their little granddaughter and they were just playing and they were sitting literally across from us on a bench and my kids they were all over the place climbing trees just playing around my wife was taking care of our youngest Samuel and they were just dumbfounded by the amount of children that we have Uh, they often ask you are they all yours so we say no we just borrow them here and there (laughs) but they're looking at us And my wife is getting kind of uncomfortable because they are really staring. And at one point, we finally get up and begin to leave. And as we're leaving, my wife looks over her shoulder. And that lady, 
clearly does this. <laughs> and at that point, my, my wife, uh, in Czech language, that was one of those wonderful moments where she used her Czech. She says, yes, six children. We have six children. And just shouted it back at her in Czech. It was, it was great. But they're staring. And that's what we are called to do. We are to stare, to consider, to look at, to see with the mind, and even to experience. That's what all is inside of this word. We are exhorted then to wrap our mind and our affection, both of these things, around this idea that the Father has done something. We are to, as if, probe the theological depths of this truth of God being a Father and let that lead us to affections, to love. And so what are we to consider? We are to consider outpouring. And the outpouring we see right immediately after the word see. What kind of love the Father has given to us. Right here, just the, the mentioning of consider, see what kind of love God has given to us. The Father has given to us. All in that you have hidden the history of redemption, the history of the Old Testament, all the covenants with the patriarchs, or the, all the covenants with, with Moses and people of Israel, with David and others, even the covenant that God has God has sealed with us through Jesus Christ. All of these are hidden inside of this idea, consider the love the Father has given us. The love that God has given us sprang out of His amazing, unconditional love. We see that already as far as back in the book of Deuteronomy. God says, Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 and 7 to, to Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Later, God reminds Israel, in just a couple chapters later, that it is not because they're so righteous and great that He has chosen them. The simple lesson that God is giving Israel is there, I chose you not because you're so lovable, not because you're so righteous, not because you deserve it, I chose you because I decided to choose you. I decided to lay my love on you. I decided to pour out my love on you. Out of my free, sovereign love, I decided to do that. They are not worthy of His love. We are not worthy of His life. Just in case we think that Israel is a little different from us, all we have to do is fast forward a little bit to the book of Ephesians. And what do you find there? Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature 
children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Does it sound like we deserve to be loved? It sounds like we are children of wrath. It sounds like someone who doesn't deserve to be in God's family. Someone who needs to be rejected. And then we have this amazing change in the text. But, but God, being rich in mercy because the great love with, with which He loved us, the love that He decided to pour out on us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. If there is any indication of any kind of effort on our parts to earn the love of God, we have eliminated grace. But it is the grace of God that brings us to Him. But that's not the end. Notice what happens. What underscores the character of God's amazing love is this. It was given to us. Pure grace. God's choice to love us. Completely independent of our efforts. Even that verb has given to us. Is expressing an incredible reality. He has given to us. If you have the grammar teachers here, they will tell you there is difference between past tense and a perfect tense. This is the perfect tense. Past tense just simply tells you something happened in the past. I studied theology. That's great. It happened in the past. Does it mean that its effects are still present to this day? Not necessarily. I may have studied theology, but that doesn't mean that the effects are still there. But if I have studied theology then the effects of my studies are still with me to this day. And notice, what kind of word does John use here? Does he say God, the Father, gave us His love or has given us His love? He says has given us. He's using perfect tense. It's the tense of the gospel, which should remind us that what God has done on the cross through Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago or so, has still effect for those who are in Christ. It has happened in the past, but the effects of that past event continue to the present. And so God has not just one time gave His love, God has given His love, and He continues to be with us because what He has done on the cross and the way the sacrifice took place. God has given us His love. But that's not it. That's not all. There is an outcome See, there's the outpouring God. We consider it God the Father has this incredible love for us. He has given it to us. But now, notice the after effect. Notice the outcome. It's there, right, when you see the conjunction. That little word, that. Behold, or see, what great love Father has given us. That. That means something follows. It is not one of those that that gives you a promise for the future. If you do this, then that will happen. It does not express the idea that if we just work really hard at beholding this love and seeing this love, that somehow we become children as if this is a transaction, we do something well and God then rewards it. On the contrary, it expresses a reality. We have been adopted to the family of God. 
We, are, we have become His children. God Himself became our Father. And we are to marvel at that. We are to consider it, contemplate it. We are to look at that lavish love. We are to look at what took place, why that love was even possible towards us. That God, the creator of the universe, has come down and through the work of Jesus Christ became our Father. Not that we have considered and did something to become His children, but that He came to us and rescued us. And so let's spend just a few moments on the idea what it means to be a child of God. If we are children of God, and as the text says, such we are, what does it mean? It means this, that we are children of God. Not everybody is a child of God. Contrary to popular idea today that we are all children of God, as we hear it over and over, as if we are all related, we are all children of God, that's not the truth. That's not what the Word of God teaches. We are all God's creation, but not all of us are children of God. John is very clear in the first chapter of his Gospel that those who received Him, Jesus Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who what? Believe in His name. Not everyone is a child of God. Only those who trust Christ, only those who, I'm going to take it a step further, follow Christ. A lot of people who will tell you on the street today, especially in North Carolina, that they've trusted Christ. The question is, are you following Him? Are you a disciple? There's a huge difference. A lot of people on their way to hell who think they have received Christ and there are Christians. But in their lives there is no credible, visible effect of their life in Christ. They will tell you, I have the birth certificate. Look, I have signed the card. I went forward to the altar. You know how many people have birth certificates who are buried in a local cemetery? All of them. Does that make them alive? Uh, what makes you alive? You're breathing. That's what makes you alive. If you want to convince me that you are a disciple of Christ, there has to be visible breath in your spiritual lungs that you are actually running after the Lord. If you're married, and I ask you, how is your marriage? Do you whip out your marriage certificate to show me it's still there? Or do you say, well, my wife and I, we love each other. We're still together. We might fuss once in a while, but we are fighting through this. By the grace of God, we continue to follow and be one as He made us one. Not all are children of God. Only those who believe in Christ. I want you to have a picture in mind because this is another thing that the adoption does. Adoption changes courtroom, so you have a picture of a courtroom, into a living room. Adoption is the highest privilege for Christians. Greater even than justification. Now that doesn't mean justification is not important. 
Justification, the idea that God, through Jesus Christ, has given us the righteousness we didn't have. It's called imputation. God, not amputation, but imputation, where God credits, gives, accounts the righteousness of Christ to us because we are broke. And He takes the sinfulness that is on us and accounts it to Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so we in him might become the righteousness of God. This greatest exchange of all time when Christ's righteousness was given to us and our sinfulness was given to Christ and on the basis of that God looks at us and says not guilty or in a right standing with the court. That's justification. That's a great news. But adoption is even higher privilege. Justification is incredibly important. Adoption would not exist without justification. But what we see in adoption is even greater. See, when we speak of justification, where do we find ourselves? The term is from a courtroom. Justificare, to, to, uh, to justify. It's, it's the idea that you are standing in a courtroom. You're standing before the Almighty Judge, the God of heaven and the earth. And you stand as what? As a condemned criminal, sinful, wicked traitor, who exchanged the glory of God for what? For creation. And so we are standing there, rightfully so, sinners deemed to die. And here comes who? Satan. Satanas, the accuser. And he maliciously def- reminds God, the judge, all about the disgusting guilt and filth that is in our lives. And judge is not blind. He is all-knowing. And so he knows what kind of crooks we are. And there is no deliberation. We are guilty. And our just punishment is death. But suddenly what happens next? Here comes our advocate. Jesus Christ. And he stands before the judge and he pleads the case and says, I will take their punishment. I will take their guilt. I will take it upon myself. And because this is a heavenly throne, not an earthly throne, God the judge accepts his offer. In fact, it was an offer that was made before the foundation of the world. And he issues a verdict. And the verdict is death. And he hands, it, hands Jesus, our advocate, over to the executioners. And they carry out the orders. And we are set free. Now that itself is an amazing grace, is it not? That itself is something that we should glorify and praise God forever. And that's a picture of justification. You know, and if there is, if that was all there was to salvation, would not be sufficient to worship God forever that He has done this for us. But what follows is, is even more beautiful. Like a background during a during a theater play, the set begins to change. What's removed is all this courtroom-like setting, and the judge himself removes his robe. And you begin to see that you are standing in a living room. And a judge is no longer a judge. 
He is your loving Father. And with the words of the Apostle Luke, he falls on our neck and kisses us and orders his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The courtroom has changed. It's a living room now. We don't have this former relationship, this distant relationship with this judge. Now it is a unique, close relationship with God, a father, and we are his children. Not only it changes courtroom into living room, it also makes sons out of enemies. I'm sure all of you know someone, maybe you have done it, I know several of you have, someone who has adopted Russell Moore, some of you might know who he is, uh, he's a theologian of the Southern Baptist, uh, I think, Ethics Committee, adopted two boys from an orphanage in a small mining community somewhere in Russia. And when he first saw his boys, they were laying literally in feces and vomit, just rocking back and forth in their cribs. And they were covered with blisters and surrounded by flies. And uh, Benjamin, the older one, he was kind of more reserved, um, would sit on Russell's lap and rub his beard. And they deduced that that was probably the first time that this boy actually seen a grown man. And uh, as they were playing with them, as they were seeing these boys, they really fell, loving, uh, love, fell in love with them. But unfortunately, that day, Russell and his wife were not able to take the boys home. They had to leave him. It was one of those initial meetings. They had to leave him and come back. And so as they were saying goodbyes, it was just heart-wrenching. And the, when the boys realized that Russell and Marie were leaving without them, they just collapsed in anguish into their cribs. And they were just weeping. But eventually they came and Russell and Marie came to pick the boys up. But things were not as easy as they, they hoped for or imagined. When they were leaving the orphanage, the boys were terrified. They never seen a sun. So when they came out, they were just terrified. They never felt wind on their cheeks. And it was just scary to them. When somebody shut the car door, they were just startled. And the sensation of going 130 kilometers an hour down a highway, which is about 75, 80, uh, was just such scary experience for them. They kept looking back towards the orphanage. Once they came home, it took a long time before the boys finally began to trust them. And, and the way the parents found out and learned that the boys finally trust them is when they stopped hiding their food in their high chairs because they didn't know when the next meal would come from. And so the parents, they finally learned that these parents, they will feed us regularly. Now, similar stories like this just break our hearts and we have this compassion for these, for these children. We, we see them as poor, orphaned, oppressed children living in just horrendous conditions. But I want to draw contrast here. This is nothing like our adoption. We were not poor, orphaned, oppressed children. We were filthy sinners, guilty, desiring living to live a, 
away from God, against God with all our might. Paul described us as this. We were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is, this is who we are. We were not poor little orphans. We were rebels. We were rebels who hated God with vengeance. And what has God done? What does God do with His enemies? He loves them. He loved us. He could have saved us and made us His employees, His servants, maybe even His slaves. But God doesn't stop there. He goes and out of His enemies, out of those who came to plunder His house, He invites them in. He invites them into living room. He makes them His children. Imagine a neighborhood in which you live and on a regular basis somebody breaks into your house, wants to steal your stuff, wants to hurt your family. And your response is, come and be my child. That is offensive unless gospel comes to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. God took us, His enemies, and made them His sons and daughters. And you know what is absolutely stunning about this? Listen. God already has a son. He didn't need a son. He didn't need any of us. God already had a son, and He has a son, and He is not like us. He is perfect. He is holy. He completely, faithfully obeys every word that comes from the mouth of God. He didn't need a son. But not only this. God the Father didn't adopt just two or three sons, two or three children. In the book of Revelations, we read what? In the book of Revelation, we read that there is a multitude of those who worship Him. God adopted a multitude that is impossible to number. I know some of you had really great dads, loving dads, and you ought to thank God for them. But we live in a fallen world, and so there will be dads that will be less than perfect. Perhaps you didn't have a good father. And so it might be difficult for you to imagine God as a great father. But remember this. If you are in Christ, you have two fathers. However good or bad your earthly father might be, your heavenly father is perfect in every way. And nothing can shake His love for you. Now some of you who are not in Christ, you have only one Father. And He may be great. And even if He was the greatest dad with one of those trophies from Walmart, if He's even the greatest dad on this planet, He still cannot compare to God the Father. But that's only for those who are in Christ. Even on his best day, this earthly dad 
is no match for our Heavenly Father. You know, perhaps you were growing up and you had a friend, or you still do, who has a great dad. And you always kind of wish, in the back of your mind, I wish my dad was as good as his dad. I wish my dad was like that. Well, in Christ, you can have that kind of a father. See how great love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God, and so we are. John Owen, a famous Anglican Puritan, wrote this. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the Heavenly Father. The greatest unkindness you can do to Him is. And I want you to think about how would you complete the sentence. How would you complete the sentence? The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father or the greatest unkindness that you can show God the Father is. How would you complete that sentence? This is how John Owen answered it. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. Not to believe that He loves you. What is the greatest sorrow you can show, you can manage, is when you do not believe God the Father that He loves you. Because the Father has given us His Son. He's given us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was given to us to do what? To redeem us. To redeem us through a horrific death on the cross. To redeem us from the wrath of God. God the Father crushed His own Son to save us. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, at the bidding of His Father, went through the greatest shame, suffering, and death this world has ever known or will ever know. The Father sent His Son to redeem us, to save us, to rescue us, renew us, sanctify us, forever reconcile us with the Father, to make us His own sons and daughters, to make us brothers and sisters of Jesus Himself, to bring us to His everlasting kingdom. What more could God the Father do to show us His love? Is there anything more He could have done? If you are in Christ, you have a dad you wish you always had. You have a father that is beyond any comparison. This father is perfect in every way. His mercy is new every morning. His grace is sufficient. His discipline is fair. His wisdom is divine. His goodness is ultimate. His protection is sure. His guidance is accurate. His character is pure. His power is unlimited. His righteousness is complete. His knowledge is infinite. And neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to what? To separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. See how great a love the Father has given to us that we should be called His children, and such we are. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank You so much for incredible love You have given us. You have overflown us with Your amazing love that came to us through Jesus Christ, Your Son, our perfect Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen.